Welcome to our podcast, Bad, It's All About Crime, brought to you by Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival and the City of Sydney. I'm Suzanne Leal. And I'm Andy Muir. And each month we'll be exploring the big questions in crime and crime writing. Subscribe to our podcast, then jump onto the Bad, All About Crime book club page on Facebook to be part of the conversation. And thanks for listening. Welcome to Bad. My name's Suzanne Leal. And joining me later in the episode to talk about today's books are Andy Muir, Dr. Sue Turnbull and Catherine Dupoulou-Menager. Today we're looking at crime writers who have upended the traditional whodunit narrative, where the murder victim is simply a body whose story is rarely told. We'll be discussing crime novels where the victim speaks, where the victim and not the perpetrator or even the investigator is centre stage. I'm delighted to have Jacqueline Bublitz with me today. Jacqueline is the author of the novel Before You Knew My Name, which is creating quite a buzz. I read the novel some months ago, before it had been published, when I was asked to provide a quote for the book. Well, straight away I was mesmerised, and I really was. It's the story of a young victim of crime, the jogger who stumbles across the body, and the city of New York, where it all happens. Really, really happy to meet you in the flesh, Jacqueline. So nice to meet you, and, and thank you for your lovely blurb. Oh, look, I, I was so delighted to be asked, and so extraordinarily captivated by the story. It's, and then I've been watching how the book's been going ever since, because it's funny. Once you give a quote, you almost feel um, protective, or, or you feel some not ownership, but some um, uh, some some great affection towards the book oh, and, and how it travels in the world. So it really has creating been creating a stir. What's been the most exciting thing of all? Goodness, the entire process still feels like a dream. Um, I'm wondering when it's going to hit me. And I have little moments where, like breakthrough moments where I realize, yep, this is, this is real. This, that's your book in Dimmicks. That's the, uh, the photo of, of the Dimmicks window on George Street, um, that they decorated, um, for uh, the cover. So that was a pretty special moment. But even then it, it felt like looking at, somebody else's lovely book <laughs> look at that beautiful cover look at that I wonder what that book's about like I really do have these um almost out of body experiences when it comes to this book and and it had been um something that I had been just mine for so long and so in the build-up to publication and then certainly the last month sharing it and seeing people's responses has been incredible and humbling but I don't have any frame of reference for uh, what that was supposed to feel like. Is it sometimes a bit much? Is it sometimes a bit overwhelming? Yeah. But not to be un- to be clear, not to be ungrateful for uh, <laughs> no one wants the- an ungrateful successful <laughs> no, writer. <laughs> but I, you know, I kind of joke, but but not that they teach you how to fail, but not necessarily how to succeed. And um, certainly, um, things with to do with resilience, and you know. This book, uh, in its many iterations, had many rejections over the years, over the five to six years on its path to publication. And I got quite used to uh, the no's and the dusting myself off and trying again. But again, I didn't have any frame of reference for the yes. And there's, you know, there's a lot of uh, when when good news comes through or has come through um, with this book of me just sort of staring at the wall afterwards trying to process um quite what's happened to my life really because it does change doesn't it I mean this as you said this book has been yours for so long it's out in the world and it really is out in the world mm-hmm. and it's going to change things isn't it for the, for the future yeah there was um, nothing in my 
prior life in terms of career that that lent itself to to even this to even having this kind of conversation mm. i um for the the job I had for the longest, I was an account manager uh, for a media company. So I did have some experience in walking into a, a room of people and doing a presentation, but it was the Australian government um, <laughs> and quite serious, um, although I myself was not um, sometimes. Um, but I things like doing you know, a radio interview or having a journalist come to your house mm -hmm. and, and film you, these are things I would have done anything to avoid in my old life you know, if they did a corporate video at seek where i used to work i'm like no thank you i i don't want to be captured on on film that's there's a real lack of control so it's been the biggest learning curve um has been around um giving over some of that control that that i've held on to pretty much my whole life um for a good cause and I think the difference between the introvert that you need to be to be a writer and the yeah. extrovert you need to be to market your work is sometimes contradictory. I, I, I absolutely agree. And, and I, I would say that I'm we ambiverts where I, flip, I move between extroversion and introversion um, as many people do but I never I never know when that who I'm, <laughs> I'm going to walk into a room and w whether it's the introvert or extrovert that, that's going to um, come out and, it, and it's always been that way and I think that comes from I'm the youngest of five kids but I'm younger by far although they probably mm. my siblings don't like me saying by far <laughs> um, and so I grew up both having a, a big family but also was an only child in a yes, way. And yes, So I, there's the introspection and alone time and entertaining myself, which is where writing, you know, telling stories really came from. But then there's the gregarious, like big family um, mm. experiences that I've had as well. And so somewhat actually – just saying this now and realizing this whole experience mirrors um, mirrors my childhood in a strange way, mm, which is that you're on your own looking after yourself, and then there's everybody, mm. and they're bigger and they're louder, yeah. and or perhaps you're also the sense of attention yes. within that. Yeah, and and uh, yeah, so either fighting for space or um, absolutely everybody, and in this case, my family is they're very. Um, not just my family, actually my friends, uh, people have been coming out of the woodwork just so invested in this, particularly in New Zealand where I'm living. Mm. I left um, when I was a, a young woman um, but went back in, in 2019 and the amount of people that are so lovingly invested in this, but that's also um, a, a big thing as well like I really am the center of attention and my successes they're they're taking very personally so and also <laughs> the bad reviews <laughs> which they like to tell me about um and get very kind of offended by which which I don't I mean it's terrific to have a fan club yeah a and I would say that having a book club behind you as well is a little bit like a fan club and, and mm. as you know this podcast is part of a, of a book club on Facebook and what we've found as our book club grows in numbers is there's a real sense of camaraderie mm. and a real sense of wanting well for the authors who come before us it, and you seem to be finding this as well. Oh my goodness everybody has been so generous and and from the so I have um um, a publisher in, in the UK and my first experiences actually were with joining a couple of uh, 
groups um, on Twitter, like debut authors. Um, mm. They're quite active on, on Twitter and they just really embrace me and they embrace each other. They celebrate successes. They might be some private kind of, <laughs> oh, they've, you know, they've hit the bestseller list and, and oh, my book's not necessarily getting as much attention. You know, you, you, can, you know there's, there's dynamics, but everybody is so supportive. And the, um, I mean, the first time I got asked to blurb something, I was like, Really? Like, I was so excited to uh, to do that. And it felt like such a responsibility um, because everybody in the industry has uh, that I've encountered has just been so lovely to me, um, including you. So thank you. It's such a lovely, um, lovely community. And then you add the book bloggers and the, you know, the, the readers and the, the message requests that come through from people who are just like compelled to tell you, you know, how they've responded to mm. your book. Thankfully, mostly in a positive, <laughs> in a positive way. It's been extraordinary. Um, so actually, that's the part I've enjoyed the most. It take a really long time to answer your first question. <laughs> Let's move on to the book itself. There will be many people out there who are listening to the podcast who will have read it or will have heard something about it. But particularly for those who haven't, I'd like to whet the appetite just with the opening page. And um, who better to read it than the author herself? <laughs> Thank you very much. Before you knew my name, you will already have an idea of me. There are enough of us dead girls out there. From a distance, so many of our stories look the same. That's bound to happen when someone on the outside tells the story, speaks as if they knew us. They pick over our remains, craft characters from our ashes. And this is what the living get left, left with, someone else's impression of who we used to be. If I tell you my story, if I let you know what happened to me, maybe you'll see who I was who I am. Maybe you'll like the truth of me better, and maybe you'll wish this for every dead girl from now on, the chance to speak for herself, to be known for more than her ending. Wouldn't that be something after everything we've lost? Tell me, Jacqueline, did you write the opening of the book first, last, or in the middle? Ah, the ending of this book was written first. Um, almost um yeah almost exactly as it as it is now it's just a little bit of editing and I very much worked backwards which I think you it is a story that's told backwards in a way because I give away you know, on the on the first page that um our, our narrator has has not survived um so no this um that little piece there came later um, and came through really strongly when I was um, very intimately acquainted with Alice Lee, our, our narrator, one of our two um, storytellers in the book, so so intimately um, connected to her voice. And I just, I kept, I would go for a run and I would hear like, if I tell you my story, if I tell you my story, it was just wouldn't leave me alone. And so I sat down and wrote that and maybe like, two or three minutes. It's interesting because you've talked a lot in your interviews about going for a run and, yeah. and I also go yeah. for runs and you have two main characters in the book. One is Alice Lee, who, as you've told us, is dead mm -hmm. and we know from the beginning that she's dead. And the second character is a runner. Tell me who she is. So this is Ruby. Uh, Ruby Jones is uh, a Melbourneian who comes to New York City. Um, she arrives the same day as Alice Lee, who's, who's come from um, the Midwest. Ruby's 36 years old. She's 
double the age of Alice, who um, is therefore quite obviously 18 when she arrives. And Ruby is coming to New York. She knows what she's getting away from, but she doesn't know what she's going to. So she's chosen New York for that evocative, if I can make it there, I think at, at heart or from, from certainly from my perspective, Ruby's a true romantic, but a bit of a hot mess as well um, when she lands in New York looking to get away from uh, a relationship that that is toxic and unfortunately might be quite familiar um, to to some readers, at least in, in some way, uh, a person that doesn't want her as much as she wants him, I suppose is a nicer way to put it. Um, and she's absolutely aimless and she knows this um, when she gets to New York and she, I don't think it's a spoiler to say, that she's the one who finds Alice's body and there's a you know a line you can find anything in New York and even a dead body it would seem and that's sort of what what happens to Ruby she wants something to happen but I'm not sure she uh, would have chosen uh, would have chosen that of course it's it's obvious isn't it that someone has died and the person who's likely to find that someone who has died often at night often under cover of dark is the person who's first up in the morning is that how you came to have the jogger and the dead girl as allies, really, in this story? So I had, um, and I always try to think of a better word, but I'm just going to say inspired, so I don't stare at the wall for a while, coming up with the perfect <laughs> word as if I'm actually writing something. Um, I had been inspired by a tragic case in Melbourne. Um, a young woman, uh, Renee Lau, uh, had been visiting and working in Melbourne and she had been murdered on St Kilda Road. Um, she was chased into the Botanic Gardens in around five o'clock in the morning or no, a little earlier, heading to work. She worked as a pastry chef. Now, I lived on St Kilda Road. just um, So it was my neighbourhood. I always considered, you know, you were safe once you got to St Kilda Road if you were walking home from the city back in, back in the day when there was no Ubers and the cabs wouldn't take you down the road because um, it wasn't worth the fare. Um, so I could identify with uh, this young woman in a way that we so often do, unfortunately, you know, when, when another case hits the news and it's in, in your city and it's places you've been and, and, and they've been doing the things that you've been doing and, and they've been, um, you know, a perpetrator has, has attacked them and, and, and sort of taken over the narrative. I was used to having that kind of, uh, a really visceral response to that. But on top of that, her body was found in, in the morning by a jogger running the tan and I um, would run the tan quite regularly and quite early in the mornings. That was my neighbourhood uh, and I could not stop thinking about what if that had been me? So not just what if that had been me as in young Renee, but what if it had been me, the jogger? Because it was a, a distressing scene um, and then it was an obvious, it was obvious that a crime had been committed. She she had, it, it had been quite a brutal attack. And here's a person just going out for their morning run and see something um, just off just off the path and then they've discovered a dead body. I, I could not get that um trauma out of my mind and I did a little bit of research around what um well tried to find stories of, of people who had found um bodies in, in those kind of circumstances you know thinking every every story that hits the news um around that type of crime there's a fisherman or a dog walker or a jogger uh, who finds the body so 
who are they? And and maybe there's some stories about them out there. And I could only find one. A very it was like you know, archived article from the Guardian or something about um, people who had. I suppose it's quite niche that what I was looking for was people who had found bodies um, that where the victim might have ended up being part of like a, ser- a case with like a, a serial killer, something that became uh, even more newsworthy um, as a result of the circumstances. And there was one particular gentleman in the story who uh, had been so affected by this discovery and he became very um, – would follow avidly follow the case, but he didn't have any connection to it uh, any longer. Despite discovering the crime, he would go every year and uh, take flowers or commemorate. Commemorate is exactly the word I was looking for, and that was my sort of moment of yeah, I'm on to something here for two reasons. One. And by that I mean a story that would talk about the connection between that you might feel between uh, the person who finds the body and um, and the victim. I'm on to something because there's a very human story here, but it's not being explored. Like there's not there's not a lot out there, and I, I think I might be able to, um, or at least try to. To, I might be able to try to tell the story that hasn't in, that hasn't been told before. Which I don't. I mean, you're a writer. Like when you come up with a that that idea, that little kernel where you're like, "Ooh, I would want to read about that," mm-hmm. and it goes from being work, then the research and the um, you know the amount of time that you you put into these labors of love, it, it goes from being work to to um, your own curiosity being sated and also this kind of almost a joyful experience no matter how bleak the subject matter is. Seems to me that what you've done is give names to the unnamed. So when you're talking about the jogger that stumbles over the body, that's so often how it's reported from the beginning or at the beginning in particular. A jogger at 6am in the morning stumbled across the body of a naked partly dressed Mm -hmm. woman and um, were you conscious of the unnamed in both those circumstances? Yeah, I mean, there's been all sorts of lovely symmetries uh, with with the book, and I sometimes think, um, you know, like everything in retrospect, everything makes sense. You see the patterns, and and you see what you oh, thank you, past me, <laughs> present me, is grateful for the work that you did back then. I mean, I knew I did think about the anonymity piece because I couldn't. There wasn't anybody I could contact to ask how how their experience, you know, what had happened to them. For example, the the jogger who found Renee Lau's body, I didn't have any way of contacting that person. They don't, um, the, they've played a significant role and then that's it. Um, and I wasn't, um, to be clear, nobody was, no agent or publisher was waiting for this book. So I didn't have any kind of credential where I could go to. I don't know, the police and say, would you, and they wouldn't be able to give it anyway, would you give me the name of this person? And so I was super conscious of that um, anonymity just by virtue of not n- not knowing how I would even find these people uh, to talk to. Um, but some of the sort of deeper, that sort of deeper significance around naming and I th- maybe a lot of that happened quite organically through the writing of the book. What's interesting particularly is that Alice Lee, who is dead, has a voice and it's a voice that is full of life from her death. 
What inspired you to tell the story in that way? I knew from the beginning that I wanted the story to centre in some way um, on the victim. And I knew I wanted it to be her story. But to be to be perfectly honest, I didn't know how that was going to work. For quite a while I played with uh, dual kind of narrators. I played with all sorts of different, all third, um, sort of third person um, in terms of voice. And Alice Lee, I didn't even know for a while there who she was. And then one afternoon I started writing her in, in flashbacks. I just was like, okay, it's pretty much a work, like a, a writing exercise. Let's just get to know who this young girl was. And she came to me so vividly, so, you know, that overused, fully formed. But mm. she really actually did. And I was almost giddy uh, this day. I found, I found my um, – she was always Alice from, from the beginning. It's almost like she – she picked her name, um, if that doesn't make me sound too uh, strange. Uh, and then because I so enjoyed writing her and and I was actually writing some quite – she came to me in scenes where she was in a compromised position uh, with a character called Mr. Jackson. Um, and that's all, all I'll say about that. However – she was they were not easy scenes to write but she was still a joy to write if that makes mm. sense and so i thought why not pull her into the present and just see like what if i bring her what if i let her uh walk down the streets of new york but we already know that she's uh, we, we already know that she's dead um why don't i just see and it that was when it turned from an idea into a into a book she was just so easy to write I don't mean that that crafting the book and, and getting it to the point that it is now was easy certainly not not at all at times but she whenever she showed up on the page was just I just sometimes sort of let her run wild and like, I love that character I really love her too and and she does she interacts she's dead but she interacts she watches with sadness uh, to Ruby she watches Ruby discover what she may or may not discover and it reminded me although the book is very original but it did remind me a little bit of The Lovely Bones by Alice Seabold mm-hmm. have you read that is, a, oh, is yes. it a book that, that, that spoke to you? Yeah I loved so unashamed loved The Lovely Bones um, when I was in my early 20s and it was one of those books um we didn't have book we my my group of friends we didn't have book clubs back then but we would share a sort of tattered copy from borders or something it was the book that we shared with each other and then I would pass on to to my niece back in New Zealand um the lovely bones was one of the books that I loved that it it was literary enough um, mm. But commercial, so accessible literary fiction is what what I would like maybe call it now. But I didn't really have the language then. Um, and it, I, it, it was beautifully written about this really like terrible like crime that mm-hmm. had happened. And so it, it's always stuck in my mind as a book that I, w- oh, you know, I, I, one of those books where you're like, I wish that I wrote, I wish that I wrote mm-hmm. that. Um, I was very conscious with creating. Uh, our narrator, Alice, I wanted her to be the anti-Susie Salmon. So Susie is the 14-year-old girl who's murdered. Um, and we know once again right from the beginning uh, mm. that she um, has not survived um, this attempt on her life. And she's 14, she's virginal, she's obsessed with kissing a boy and and also she 
quite clearly goes to a type of heaven. So there were things, the way that the lovely bones influenced me was almost the things I didn't, it with great respect to that novel, the things I didn't want to do because it had already been done and done like really well. Uh, but I also wanted to explore this notion of the, the and using my air quotes here, like perfect victim. Um, so that the, the political in me, uh, once the story was taking shape, I knew that I wanted to play with notions of who is the perfect victim, who do we give our sympathies to? And I couldn't have a character like Susie Salmon, um, it, it wouldn't work because she was somebody that she didn't have really a backstory. She's her story is about you know what happens after she dies, um, where I wanted this to be about who Alice was, not just you know what happened to her. You've said elsewhere that you are sick of perpetrator-led narratives. Been in a mood that day. <laughs> Bring it on now. <laughs> Tell me why. I I do want to say and, and make clear that I understand the fascination um, with the big baddie the monster the murderer and particular serial killers i'm addicted to shows like mind hunter which you know goes into you know the birth of fictionalized you know birth of like profiling serial killers at the fbi i totally get it um but there's always been something oh um i that's felt like sensationalistic is the right word and also that the victim completely disappears when we give such focus to the perpetrator and even actually when the the story um, in fiction is about say the detective and the quest to find uh, the perpetrator once they have found them often there's these moments in the book where there's like mwahaha moment where the perpetrator explains exactly what they've done so the the reader can catch up with um you know all of these things that they've done and it the story then still becomes about the perpetrator even when it's like the 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 hero quest to to um to catch them and i read um just a really simple sentence the other day that resonated which is that we deserve better anti-heroes and had I read that when I was writing this book I would have had it in post-it notes like pretty much in every place in my in my house we we deserve better anti-heroes meaning that we often these perpetrators especially the you know famous like the Ted Bundys and the the serial killers they do get fetishized and um, they do end up having the Zac Efron's of the world play them in movies, and I I did not want that for my um, my perpetrator. I didn't even want to address uh, him at all. Um, but certainly, like I I know all about him, and I have a, a profile to him. And actually, the actually the more that I did my research and the things that haven't made it into the book are what informed. Uh, some of my reluctance to to really give him any more um, time on the page um, than he deserved, which which should be none, um, because you learn that it really just is about with these perpetrators. It's just about power, isn't it? Power and control, and and then you can connect the dots to voice and who gets to tell the story and who gets to sort of be listened to and heard and and um, examined and understood and I didn't I didn't want that I wanted to take away the power and take away the control who gets the light shone on them Mm. so shine the light away and focus elsewhere yeah and by having Alice tell her story so many parts of the script 
could be flipped in terms of of that the, the narrative that you might when you're trying to solve a crime that where you might normally you follow the detective you might follow the perpetrator you might follow a family member having her tell the story meant that she controlled everything we found out and i that was one of the things that i loved um about her uh, was and it was the way that she would say no I'm not going to tell you anything else I know you want these sort of juicy details and, and I'm saying me as the author I understand that you know people do want to you know sometimes you really do actually want to know what happened like what actually happens um because it can be worse in your in your head as well you know what you imagine sometimes uh, but she controlled what we found out how we found out she controlled the language about what happens to her and obviously that can't happen in you know real life murder cases but it certainly is something that we could be doing better when it comes to uh sexual violence and and so where, where there's where the where the victim survives um and where we can give them back their voice and let them decide what we you know what we should know and and instead of um yeah always putting that spotlight on the perpetrator mm. and so successfully and uh, so carefully and so lyrically have you given that voice back to Alice Lee. Before we leave you, uh, what have you been reading? Do you have a couple of recommendations for our book clappers? I do. And so these are – I don't read in um, in my genre much So when I'm writing and I've actually just been finishing my second book. Uh-huh. Uh, so the edits are, are with my publisher now. And so – I, and that has elements of uh, around uh, well, ghosts, maybe uh, deals with the, you know, gendered violence, um, and again, and issues of identity and voice and power and control. And so, I've been reading anything that I've read. I've been trying to avoid um, anything that's thematically similar. So, uh, one book that I just cannot recommend enough is "Last One at the Party" by Bethany Clift, and that is a pandemic story is about the potentially the last woman on earth um and bethany wrote this story and got her publishing deal in the at the end of 2019 so pre-covid um has had quite the ride as a result um you know professionally um with this story and i think a, a lot of people might be a bit or not a lot, but many people wary of reading a pandemic. So this is a riot. It's so funny, hard to hard to kind of get your head around. Uh, but it's not about COVID, although it, it references COVID now. Um, this is edited during COVID. It's a woman who, if you, the last woman on earth, she goes to Harrods and gets you know wildly drunk and takes all the designer handbags that she's never been able to afford. And um, that's all I'll say for kind of. <laughs> Well, the other thing she does as well, uh, um, it's funny, it's feminist, it's sad, it's um, timely in a way that, you know, she's quite alarmed by probably herself, even the author, we're, we're quite good friends. So I would definitely recommend Last One at the Party. I read it in um, just over two days, which was such a luxury to just, just read. Um, and then another book um, – Betty uh, by Tiffany McDaniel uh, is a book that I actually read quite a while ago, so not while I was um, working on on the second book. Um, and that is, 
I just it's sort of like the crowd where the is it where the crawdad sings um mixed with another more more brutal book um my absolute darling it's like if they had a child it would be betty um and so betty is about a family in the, the appalachians in in the states and betty's father is cherokee um and her mother is white and they are poor and they have a big family and it is really um a story about love and brutality and actually reminds me a bit of the the color purple in a way but i had um after i lost my dad the the, the Betty's dad in this book is so extraordinary. This character is so amazing that I there were p- parts uh, where I would have to put the book down and just like it was the most cathartic, beautiful read. So I'd encourage sort of anybody who's got the stomach for a bit of brutality and uh, you know the impacts of poverty and racism and you know that if you are not looking it's not an easy read but it's lyrical and it's beautiful and uh it really celebrates um father-daughter relationships in a really Mm. lovely way and of course before you knew my name is dedicated to your late father yeah and um and so we come full circle thank you so much for your time Jacqueline and um best of luck with the rest of the ride thank you So here we are back with the troops. Um, Suzanne Leal here again and with me Andy Muir and Catherine Dupoulou-Manager and Sue Turnbull and to my delight Jacqueline Bublitz. And it's a little bit odd actually because now we're going to be talking about Before You Knew My Name and um, the author herself is here quietly listening but I think she should be uh, quietly taking part as well. So we'll see how we go. (laughs) I thought it was terrific. I thought the novel was really original, really captivating what did you think, Andy? Oh, look, I have to say, you know, thank you for recommending it because this is not something that I would have normally read. Um, it's uh, it's a little bit out of my, my field of, of interest. Because but I loved it. It's, it's a page-turner. I think the characters are so engaging and it's such an interesting world and take on, on crime, putting the sort of the, the victim first and sort of exploring that because um, it's not something we normally see. So, yeah, no, I really liked it. How about you, Catherine? Yeah, I really did too. I should put my cards on the table and say that I actually interviewed Jacqueline um, a couple of days ago. So I read the book with great care. Um, And I loved many different aspects of it. I like the fact, I love the construction. And I I said to her when I interviewed her, this shouldn't work. Because, you know, you're perfectly used to alternating chapters, voice one, voice two, Mm. voice one, voice two. And I started reading it thinking, okay, we're going to get voice one, voice two. And then I thought, Hello. This is not what's happening at all. So it's actually much more subtle. And Alice is really the narrator. Even in Ruby's sections, Alice is there pointing, telling. And there's this extraordinary tension. And you know that Ruby is going to find Alice's body because you know that from page one, pretty Mm. much. So there shouldn't be any tension because you know it's going to happen. But yet there is. And that's really, really excellent. Plus, there are some very moving parts in the book. So there's a vigil for, for Alice when she's dead, mm-hmm. which reminds me of the vigils that we've seen in, in well, all over the world, but in Melbourne in particular. And there are just some little lines late in the book. There's a line about how when, let me get this right, when Alice is buried, when there's a funeral, um, Jacqueline writes that, all the girls who knew her and the, and a man she was who was on the scene feel sorry for him, not for her. And there's just a great line where you say something like, "They don't know what it's like to have 
to have to agree to survive until they do it themselves. Whoa, you know, it, it, it's actually, you've said it better than that, but it's very powerful. And interesting about younger women and even a women three, you know, like a 14, the difference between a 14-year-old and an 18-year-old and your understanding. And just great. So a lot about, a lot about women. And it's also very funny, which you think it wouldn't be. <clears throat> but there are some really funny bits. Um, there's something called the Death Club, which I won't say anything else about, but it's just laugh out loud funny. And some scenes where uh, uh, Ruby decides she possibly needs a bit of help and goes along to a, 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 a kind of meeting. And you just think, oh, this is so good. So I loved it. I loved it too. And um, I, like you, I guess, Catherine, I, I, when I first sort of found out what the book was about and that it was written from the point of view of the victim who had already died, I thought, oh, I'm not sure if I can deal with that, you know, this, this. And yet from that first page when you meet Alice, she's completely and utterly engaging. You know, she's so charming. She brings you into the book. She doesn't ask you to feel pity. Um, that's not what it's about. She just wants to show you and she wants to tell you and she's very, very clear about what she's doing all the way through. And so she, she felt like a kind of spirit guide, you know, a, a very nice familiar taking you through the book. When I met Ruby, I, I I wondered if I was going to be annoyed with her because she's, you know, so obviously in a relationship that's not going anywhere and and then she's drinking so much as the vodka and I'm wondering how she runs. How does she run after drinking all that vodka? That's why she runs. <laughs> that's why she runs. Well, you know, this is, this is the great thing about um, female private eyes. You know, Sarah Paretsky's female central character, Scarpetta, was always drinking too much and then running the next morning. And I always thought this was such a bizarre thing to do. You know, anybody sensible with a hangover goes to bed with a hot water bottle and doesn't emerge and watches, you know, an entire season of Game of Thrones or something. I just couldn't understand the jogging angle. But nonetheless, the way in which those two women come together. Um, and I actually loved the death club. And this notion of the people who experience losing someone and the sort of survivor's guilt which brings them together and the attempt to deal with it. So the book deals with some really important stuff about death. What did you think about the death? I thought it was great. It's one of those things that you read and you go, oh, I wish I'd come up with that. It's sort of, um, and you kind of wonder, um, there has to be like an element of truth to it. Sort of this kind of survivors group. Hmm, who could help us with that? Yeah, I'm just um, <laughs> wondering, Jacqueline. Um, you can just take notes, but um, do you know where you might think about a deaf club? Where you get the inspiration from? I think, and there are a few iterations of that group of, of people. Um, but certainly after um, my father passed away, I had a, a lot of questions. Um, about where he was and, you know, what, what had happened. And the only people I wanted to talk to were people who had been through something similar. Mm -hmm. And the only comfort that I got, if, if any comfort at all, uh, was when somebody would reach out and say, you know, this is how I felt when my, mm -hmm. you know, insert whomever yeah. that they've lost. And so um, through that final edit, which is which is what got me my agent and, and then the book that you're reading is, is quite um, close to that final edit after my father died, Death Club really changed into um, yeah, an acknowledgement of how we, we don't really get to talk about these things. and um, But when we do get to talk about death and when we do get to explore our, our feelings with people who, who know or understand, it is one, I used to always hate it when people would say, you know, 
you, you, can't, you can't understand this thing until you've experienced it. I was find that so offensive about anything. But actually, now I'm in that camp when it comes to, to losing someone that you, you, know, you love that, that deeply. So Death Club was it's a bit of a tribute to my dad. Mm, thanks for that. Thanks, Jacqueline. Um, we spoke earlier about Alice Seabolt's novel, The Lucky, the, the, the Lovely Bones. Uh, it's a book that I also read years ago. And of course, for those who haven't read it out there, it's a book where the narrator is also dead and is also the victim of a murder. Um, Hive Mind, well, what did you think about the book? Anyone got any thoughts on The Lovely Bones? I read it a long time ago, so I had a kind of quick re-look. So at first I thought, oh, I wonder if it's going to be the same kind of voice because, you know, dead young woman. But it is a very different kind of voice. And I'd forgotten, how, again, how funny the heaven is in the, in the Lovely Bones. She goes to heaven and heaven is whatever you need it to be. So if you're little, there's a swing set so you can swing. And if you, you know, um, but that also gives a voice but she's more from memory because I didn't have time to read it all. She's more um, in the lovely bones that the dead girl has more impact in the present. She actually intervenes more. I mean, Alice intervenes, sort of intervenes, tries hopes, to intervene. Hopes to but, intervene. Yeah, hopes that she's getting through. <clears throat> but that's a much more direct link. And you see more of, because I forgot the name of the girl in the lovely bones. Susie's, yeah. Because she comes from a very tight family, you see the impact on her family much more than really on this these two strangers who come together. So I found it complete. It was really good to be reminded of it. I found it, but it's totally different. Jacqueline, for me, with the lovely bones, I mean, it, it was completely groundbreaking. I mean, was it groundbreaking? Do you think at the time was this one of the really early examples of the dead? victim speaking forward yeah and i'd never read anything like that before um and something i mentioned before and sort of this accessible literary story where the writing was beautiful the subject matter was not beautiful and somehow they came together so Mm. well i remember being profoundly moved by that story uh, and yeah, giving it, uh, giving it, lending it, giving it away as gifts when I could afford to. Um, but reading it again um, as a grown-up, mm-hmm. uh, and also with an eye towards making sure there was no copying or plagiarism <laughs> or anything like that, it was an interesting ex- in experience because there there are parts of that story, in particular around heaven and some of the. Um, uh, perhaps answers given um I, I absolutely wanted to do the opposite i wanted it to be about the yeah. question of what happens after you die not answers about um, what might happen so the question was um yeah. uh, sue about whether that lovely bones was groundbreaking but there are other books are there not where where the victim has spoken and the victim comes up to to play with a narrative yeah, the, within crime fiction, that attention to the victim, um, I think, has, has I can see it surfacing in all sorts of places. But one of the books that was very memorable for me that did that, I thought, extraordinarily well was um, Manette Walter's third crime novel called The Skull's Bridal, published in 1994. And um, it, it's kind of interesting. I was I was picked up the copy and I brought it in and um, for anybody who's interested it begins with a um, 
a map of a village. And I was writing about it once in terms of the sense of place, and I didn't notice until I was actually presenting at a conference when somebody actually said that the um, compass in the map is reversed east and west or the wrong way around, which kind of made the... the um, the suspension of my disbelief collapse at a certain moment there. But opposite that map is the last page in the diary of the murdered woman. So her diary is used throughout the book, culminating in the first page of the diary on the last page. So through the book, this woman who has been murdered, found in the bath, this elderly woman wearing this medieval um instrument of making your wife submission uh, submit the scold's bridle to you know with us with something that stopped her speaking that was put on as an instrument of torture and um and actually uh, a punitive device she's found in the bath wearing this um instrument surrounded by nettles in the bath it's the most kind of extraordinary kind of opening but her voice is present throughout the book through the diary and I have a feeling that there are more books like that around where you do get the voice of the victim not directing you through the book but certainly as a very strong presence yeah and it, it the interesting thing also about this book which I read at the time because I loved Minette Walters and is that you end you begin with her last entry I think yeah. and you end with her first entry yeah. and so she comes back to life as that child who's been abused well who's been badly treated and it's very very powerful and the structure i mean i i, I just found it fascinating because it, in terms of narrative structure you've got the diary which is going back in time as the investigation moves forward in time so you've got this this perfect kind of double narrative yeah, going the wrong way going in opposite, yeah, directions. opposite directions and if you if you imagine that that structurally that must have been so complicated to do, mm. but she does it beautifully. And I have a feeling that she might have done it the other way around, of course, writing the diary from woe to go and then Twisting actually putting it, it in the book it, yeah. and reversing it. It sounds yeah. like a fugue, you know, like Bach's fugues yeah. where everything goes up and then back you turn and around it and it's complexity or its complexity is disguised by how it sounds. I mean, it sa sounds extraordinary in terms of structure. Well, this, this yes, and there... There are ways in which, you know, there are crime novels that do that kind of structural thing so interestingly. This is this is not an, a kind of isolated incident, which which is one of the reasons why when people say, you know, that the victim is only ever a figure in crime fiction, you know, they don't matter. I have to kind of come back and say, well, actually, that's not always true and not strictly true of any crime novel, because in order to find the perpetrator, you have to know enough about the victim to know why they were killed what what was that going on and but it's not about them i think that's the difference it's about reconstructing yes what happened and saying well she, you know it's not quite if she hadn't walked down that street but if she hadn't married that man or if you know there's off it's often if only this i mean that's not entirely true no. if that hadn't happened if they yes. hadn't done this but it coming back to something that the jacqueline said earlier um you know, the question, you, you raised the issue about the focus always on the perpetrator. And I, th I was thinking about this as you were talking and I was thinking, yes, but we're not as interested in good people as we are in bad people because we want to know what makes them do what they do. It, it's, it's the need to understand so that we can 
how can we stop this? How can we do something about it? You know, is there a possibility that if we know what makes people do these things, we can somehow avoid it happening again? So I think that's one of the reasons why we remain fascinated in the perpetrator, if, if you like, and why crime fiction so often is about not trying, as we've talked about before, solve the crime, but explain why it happened. But there's a lot of perpetrators as victims. I mean, a lot. You know, they only, like, they're bad because terrible things happen to them. Yes. And that becomes, I mean, that's quite interesting in itself. You know, an abuser was abused. That's why he's abusing. Which is, so you, you're kind of suspended because this person has done terrible things, but they've done terrible things because it was done to them. And is that supposed to excuse it? No, it's not an excuse. It? It's an explanation. That's never an excuse, but it is an explanation. Do you think that's a little bit, Pollyanna-ish, um, with the greatest of respect, Sue, in terms of um, the um, the reason we re re read crime is to make the world better and to make sure we know why the perpetrator is bad in the hope that others might be better. I mean, is that a little bit optimistic? No. Don't people read crime a lot to get that adrenaline burst, to know what's happening, to have certainty in an uncertain world? I don't think it's either or. It can be both. I think it, both are true. You, you, need, you need the narrative to pull you through. You need those moments. But at the same time, you are, with any kind of reading, you're trying to understand the situation that you're reading about. So I think that, that what we call the epistemological quest, the quest for understanding, mm. is always there. But there are books where you have really unpleasant victims. Yes, yes, for example. Well, like, yeah. <laughs> we, we both read this one as well, Laura Elizabeth Woollett, The Newcomer. So it's actually a fictionalised, as it were, account of a murder on Norfolk Island. And it's hard, and I've, I'm sure this is deliberate, but it's quite hard to feel a lot of sympathy for the woman who gets killed. I mean, not, that sounds, makes me sound really vicious, but um, you keep thinking, just don't do that. Mm. I mean, <laughs> Sue and I have this thing about women getting, women, getting drunk she gets drunk all the time um but that does but of course what i think the writer's doing is that doesn't mean you deserve to die because you have because you get drunk all the time and you're clearly a very confused woman and you have completely out there sexual relationships does not mean that you should be killed and of course i mean you know if you needed a clue as to what she was doing perhaps the subtitle would help which is um, or at least on on the advanced yeah. copy there's no such thing as a perfect victim yeah. and of course this is what she's um she's playing with um this yeah. is a uh, yeah she's not much fun she's hard work she's um it seems she's got something like a borderline um personality something disorder like but um but that in itself is interesting yeah. because it's do we have to love someone um, in order to follow them to their death? What happens if we can't stand them? Do they have have they in somehow somehow caused their death? And mm. I think um, Laura Elizabeth Woollett really plays with that trope and tries to turn it on its head. Well, it's Successfully, that, you know, you if you're wearing a short skirt, you deserve to be raped. I mean, I'm not suggesting that you do, but there's that. You know, if you're a nasty person, well, of course, you know, what does it, does it matter if you're murdered? It's just challenging all that nonsense. And so what did you think of the newcomer? Well, I did struggle a bit <laughs> um, because I found her dislikable. I think it's also very much about class, that book, actually, and, and how you how it's also about a, a, a it's set on this sort of fictionalized Norfolk Island, which I have to say, it did not make me want to go to Norfolk Island at all. Uh, an insular, inbred um <laughs> community 
Um, I think it worked incredibly well. The mother was a great character mm -hmm. as well. But it has no, it's not nice. There are no nice answers. It's quite tough. And again, although the perpetrator is caught, it's not about the perpetrator. It really is not about the perpetrator at all. Um, it's about her. And the interesting and complicated life. The interesting thing about that book too is that it was inspired by a real life murder that took place on Norfolk Island. And I think, as I understand, Norfolk Island has been promoted and perhaps is, is truly uh, a safe place to be, at least according to promotion and history. And this was the first murder that had taken place uh, in very many years, and that took place in two thousand and two. And what happens is that in this book, Laura uh, Elizabeth Woollett goes under the um, the ripples. Yeah. I remember, I remember reading about this murder. There is a true crime um, publication mm -hmm. around this, written by um, someone who was an ABC Radio National producer, Tim. I've forgotten his surname. Um, we'll put that in the notes afterwards. But yes, the, a young woman that was murdered on the island. An outsider. Yeah, who comes. An outsider mm -hmm. who comes. Yeah, and it was a really good true crime book, to be honest. I, I think I reviewed it at the time. Okay. But again, like you, it made me not want to go to Norfolk yeah. Island. So in terms of cultural tourism, I reckon that one's baddie, missed, yeah. missed, the, uh, missed the appeal there. <laughs> yeah. But it's interesting that... So, But the perpetrator is found, and it, the perpetrator is found in... Um, in Before You Knew My Name. And also, I know you were going to talk about this in an isolated incident, but he's almost incidentally found. They work out who he is, but it's actually about the murdered woman, but about her family, very much about her family. It's as though it doesn't matter. In, in a number of these books, yes, the perpetrator is there. Okay, you've got your full stop. You know what happened. But for the story, it doesn't really matter. Oh, she's dead anyway. Does it matter? The perpetrator. Catching. Uh, no, I think it's always what's happening around the crime that is interesting and what engages us. I think it's, you know, that exploration of, of who, who these people are, what this world is, because at the end of the day the victim is dead and, you know, once you do work out who the killer is, it is a full stop. Can you think of any crime novels where we, I mean, this is probably a really obvious question, where we don't find the perpetrator? Yes, the um, the the, the uh, unfinished Jack Irish. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. okay. The book is not finished. That's hardly fair. No, but any book, any I can't think. I didn't think to ask myself the question where you leave the book not knowing how the person died. Maybe that can be a, um, be a whole new talk. Yeah, yeah <laughs> put this on notice for all our book clubbers out there. Are there books that you know of, crime books, in which the perpetrator is not found, and the book never, and the book is finished? I, look, I would. I reckon. We'll be hard pressed to find something because that's, you know, you readers need, yeah. need resolution, um, even if they disagree with it. But, you know, we need that. Ending. The genre is about resolution. Yeah, of some kind. we need, the world needs to be restored by the, you know, justice being seen to be done. Do you agree, um, Jacqueline, that, that the genre needs uh, restoration, needs conclusion? It's just sitting there thinking, hmm, next book. <laughs> 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 Be honest, well, that's you what I it to us. <laughs> yeah, I just went off into a little kind of little place in my head about what could you do with that. But no, I, I mean, I, I know that I felt that I needed to um, name and uh, you know give the reader some kind of resolution with the perpetrator. And you only have to if you if you're lucky enough to 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 watch someone like I was watching my mum read the manuscript and accusing everyone and and how, there's a there's a sort of joy in that and, yes. and and solving the mystery and being right at the end, which inevitably you're going to be if you've accused everyone. 
Um, but that would have that would I think have taken something away uh, from her as a reader if she never found out if she was right. So it's it's almost about that as well, like solving the mystery and yes. that that sort of reward if you got it right. And mm. certainty. There is in that world that you've escaped into, there is some certainty. Around you there may not be, but that world, that world of the crime that has been committed and will be solved is certain. Mm. I remember um, with Sisters in Crime doing a questionnaire once and asking them what was the most important thing about a crime novel, reading a crime novel to them, and they said, closure. Because mm. nothing mm. in life is ever finished, but when you finished a crime novel, you have closure. Of course, it's only temporary. It will open up again. You know, it, society is the problem that is never solved that we've referred to before. Yeah. But for that moment, you have closure in that narrative. And, and just think of like true crime, like you know, Jack the Ripper, JFK, the Black Dahlia, like the Zodiac Killer. Like these are not. There's no resolution there. There's no solution. Mm, mm. So we get endless conspiracy and mm. conjecture. Mm. So I was going to say the uh, the brilliant book I'll Be Gone in the Dark, which we've yeah. talked about. And so if you re- if you read that book when I did, they hadn't actually found um, the, Golden the Golden State, State Killer. Yeah. And but then he when he was found, um, the it was sort of flabbergasting. I mean, you'd spend all this time reading this book and it was it was not long afterwards that he was actually identified. And that's a case that I come back to all of the time uh, because the, the mystery was solved. But in re- I, it would have been very different to read that book knowing who that he had been found at the end if there'd been that sort of real-life mm-hmm. closure mm-hmm. Um, in the reading of the book would have been really different. So something but to think about. in the book. So the, the awful thing about this book is that the woman who writes it, Michelle? Michelle McNamara. McNamara. She dies yeah. completely coincidentally, as it were. She's not murdered. Um, before before she finishes the book? Before she finishes, yes. And so it's kind of re-put together by her family. I don't quite oh. know who puts it together. But she kind of says at the end, you know, or somebody says at the end, he will be found. Yeah, they, 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 those, they were her words. Um, or oh, you will be found. She might actually address it. You will be found. You will be brought to justice. Walking out, step out into. Oh, it's, ooh, I got goosebumps. Yeah, it's like step do. out into the light, and we will see. You know, see who you are. Kind you know, of. It's really because she's a beautiful. She was a beautiful writer as well, and yeah, it's really when he was found, um, and she didn't. She didn't live to see it, unfortunately. But in a way, he's not unlike. In the book, she examines certain kinds of people that killer would have been, and he turns out to be a police officer or have been a police officer, and she'd looked at that. So it's really – so that's a, a book without – it's not a fictional book. It's a true crime book without a perpetrator, without the perpetrator being identified, but with a direct, we will get you to yeah. the perpetrator. And there's the difference between fiction and real life. Mm. <laughs> yeah. The promise of the future and the reality of the closure. Yeah. Just before we sign off um, – the last book that um, I'd like to talk about briefly is Emily Maguire's earlier book, An Isolated Incident. Now, it's also about a murder victim, Bella, and while she doesn't narrate the story, we learn a lot about her through the eyes of her sister, Chris. Mm. What did you think about that, Catherine? I like this book for a lot a lot of different reasons. Again, I think I interviewed Emily about it a few years ago. Um, it was very different for me because it wasn't – I mean, I know that we find out about the the victim, but we find out about the victim in order to get clues as to who her killer is. This is not why we find out about the victim. We find out about the victim because she was a person. And it's a bit like that in your book, Jacqueline. So it's it's very interesting. It's like a 
It's a different kind of story. And we do find out who who killed her. But it's almost like on the last page, I don't think the name is ever mentioned. It's sort of incidental. Um, but there's a, yeah, and there's a journalist who comes, yeah, there's two, several different voices in here, but the sister's voice is great. And that the love between the sisters in this is beautiful, really moving. So is it a crime novel? No. Well, a novel with a crime. Good question. And I think I wondered at the time whether the publishers had done the right thing in the way they'd marketed it. But I think they probably had. Perhaps it was a bit before its time. I was a little bit surprised to see it marketed as a psychological thriller. I think it's a psychological. No, it wasn't a psychological thriller. That's how they were marketing it. Yeah, yeah. But that that that's how that's how it. it, it, it but was it was advertised. a psychological drama, drama with exploration, exploration yeah, with the with the victim. So I was actually looking at crime reads. I don't know if anybody ever looks at crime reads. Um, uh, and it's it says they review store they review books, but they also comment on books. And they have writers writing about um, a subject that interests them. And there's a woman called Philippa East, a UK writer I'd never heard of, and she's a psychologist. And she's and it's thing about the the victim or the people left behind. And so I just printed it out. She says in a classic crime story, the crime usually gets solved, justice can be served, the world can be put to rights. But what about the people affected by that crime? What happens to them? So really, what happens to Ruby in that sense? She And what if the crime itself is not the worst part? What if the real heartbreak only begins once the crime is solved and everyone returns home? So that's uh, what the crime. What if the crime isn't an attack or an abduction or a murder? What if the crimes are our own failings, mistakes, lies, and betrayals? How do we solve those crimes? How do we put the world back to rights after that? Which is interesting because it kind of questions the fact that we need an ending. Or I mean, I'm, I want to go and read her books and see how what she does with that idea. Look, thank you very much, everybody, for being here today, particularly our guest author, Jacqueline Bublitz, but also Andy Muir and Sue Turnbull and Catherine Dupilou-Menager. And to all the listeners out there, remember, if you'd like to be part of the Bad Sydney crime-loving community, then subscribe to our podcast, join the Bad Sydney Book Club page on Facebook and visit our website to keep up to date with all the news. We'd love you to be part of the Bad Sydney community. Join us in person at Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival for four exciting days of interviews, panels and events about all things crime. For more details, check out our website www.badsydney.com and subscribe to find out what we're doing next. Thanks for joining us today and we'll look forward to your company for our next episode, What If They're Innocent? In the spirit of reconciliation, Bad All About Crime acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to the elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the All About Crime podcast from Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival. If you'd like to be part of the crime conversation, head over to Facebook and join our Bad All About Crime book club. The books featured in this episode are available from our online bookseller, partner Booktopia, you can find a direct link to the Booktopia Bad All About Crime page on this episode's show notes. If you love listening to All About Crime, please give us a rating and review in your favourite podcast app so other people can discover us too. The views, opinions and attitudes expressed in this episode of All About Crime are those of the participants and not those of Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival. Until the next thrilling episode, keep reading and talking crime. <laughs>